in there? Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Captain, we have contact bearing 140, 2,000 yards, closing. Understood. Rig for silent running. I said hush, Lady Chatterley, you mutinous future lamb shank. That was unpleasantly close. And massive. Who the hell is something that big in play out here? In these waters? I haven't the foggiest. It's... Oh, my stars and garters. All ahead, two-thirds. Did something just eat the... I need your attention on your station, Graham. Aye. Right. Uh, we have two contacts. 800 yards. Both still. 1,000 yards. Wait. Contact lost. Uh, one contact remains. Now closing. All ahead, full. Contact still closing. What is this thing? I don't know. But I don't think we can outswim it. You're not wrong. Contact gaining. Damn it. Don't we have any non-narrative weaponry aboard? No, just the targeting beacons. Or long-range direct story missile. It's all we're licensed for. 600 yards. Stand by for battle surface. Captain? You heard me. Programming SOS message for immediate delivery. We'll just have to hope that someone is listening. Ready one? Fire one. Now, let's get out there and lambast this leviathan the old-fashioned way until help arrives. Aye, Captain. Passenger log, SSF airship Olivia. Addison Peacock here. Life up in the clouds has been, well, it's beautiful, and I'm glad to be out of the freezer making a direct contribution for a change. I think we all are. But I'm still feeling a little traumatized. I'm not sure what I even mean by that. Rudderless, trying to adjust. It's not just the steadily increasing pace of life without cryogenic interference. It's like this dreary, dark cloud that follows us all. Some secret pain we've locked away, even from ourselves. Losing Peter didn't help morale. A week or so after the touring team returned in 2018, something happened at the compound. David told us that Peter came up to the office, I guess, upset about the hosting gig. We were never quite sure. Apparently it came to blows. The whole signs of struggle thing. It was bad. David had to subdue him. It still makes me shiver the way he told us about it all so mournfully. Blood still clinging to his shirt sleeves. 
I guess we were all really involved in our serial. We didn't even hear him dragging the burlap sack of unconscious actor past the media room. David maintains that he took Peter for treatment, that he's going to make a full recovery, that he'll be back any day now. He's been saying that for over a year. We haven't heard from Peter, apart from the old files he left behind. Ghosts in the machine. We're not really sure what happened. David seemed heartbroken, like he was suffocating on the thin air of secrecy. But he asked us all for our blind trust, and we gladly gave it. Over the next few months, David's mood became increasingly dark, unpredictable. He was suffering. We all were. He began letting all of us out of cryo-storage slowly, safely, explained that he was only trying to protect us and never intended for us to feel like prisoners cooped up in some dungeon. We all suddenly had the freedom to plan our lives, to spread out around the compound. We've expanded, specialized. For the ones who've stayed, it's a community now, a home. But another emotional uppercut was incoming. James. He fell ill. Kind of lost it. Locked himself inside the data center, listening to the archives at full volume, screaming past the din, tearing at his clothes. Trapped outside, we could only watch as he finally walked, arms outstretched into the mainframe itself, and we only found ashes after. It was horrible. Targeting beacons have been successfully deployed across the last frontier. Oh, sorry. I didn't know you were recording. No, it's totally fine. I was just... I can do this later. Let me turn it off here. There we go. It's off. Sorry, what were you saying? Olivia just fired the final volley of guidance beacons. Alaska is covered. We're en route back to headquarters. Have you eaten? Oh, no. Just tea. Please come sit. Let's see. We have cheese, olives, honey, jam... Hmm, the fresh bread from yesterday. Fruit. I could make you some eggs. Um, toast would be wonderful. Maybe a mango? I'll grab the butter. Toast, mango, coming right up. I am sorry to intrude. That sounded like a difficult subject. No, you're fine. It's just... life. Now that is a difficult subject. Huh. Still, I'm grateful to see someone's trying to put it into words. That's more than I've been able to do in a long while. We'll get there. We all will. I'm sorry, where are my manners? Olivia? Would you like to join us for breakfast? I did not want to impose. But, I must confess, it is my favorite meal of the day. By all means, pull up a chair. Ha ha, thank you. I am grateful that you both decided to volunteer for this mission. It would have been possible, perhaps even more efficient, without human escort, but I would not have enjoyed it. I agree. Superfluous human escort and breakfast mangoes from now on. Hear, hear. Gah. I am not awake enough for this. Olivia? Scanning. It is one of ours, a narrative projectile, decoding message for playback. Holy hell, help us! Triangulating origin point. I have their location. Suit up, Peacock. Sounds like we have another difficult subject headed our way. 
such is life. Hey, thanks for breakfast, you two. Likewise. Approaching SNF Chartreuse. Preliminary scans indicate that some form of metallic squid is attempting to hug the vessel to death. Sorry, that can't be right. Running self-diagnostic. Huh. All systems normal. <sighs> well, I guess we have a squid to skewer. Chartreuse calling overhead airship. Olivia, is that you? Yes, Captain. Glad to hear you're still alive down there. Glad you could join us. <clears throat> and not a moment too soon. Understood. Persist if possible. Assessing situation. Channel muted. I cannot open fire without risking injury to our own. Concurrently, the structural integrity of the vessel has been compromised. We have a matter of minutes. May I suggest an abseil? Clifton? All set. Double check for me. Please? Sure. Opening rear door. Three, two, Whee! fine. Woo! Descending now, Captain. Hang in there. We're going down fast here, Olivia. I need to transfer host credentials to your bridge. We'll manage the broadcast from up there. Gah! If we live. Understood. Receiving host credentials now. Broadcast relay online. Accessing directory structure tour 2019. Team, team, team. Introductory sequence, GXJBP. Hello, dear listeners. This is the No Sleep Podcast, and these are Neuroses Bar Graphs. As you can see, levels of excessive worry, profound feelings of despair, and of course, malingering, are at an all-time high. This is not a coincidence. I think you know that, somewhere deep within yourself. Things have been difficult lately, more so than normal, and often more so than you've known how to handle. I feel it too, the entirety of your mind screaming so loud and long that you're unable to form another thought. The dark tendrils of sorrow ever present in the periphery of your emotional vision. You are not imagining things. So, thank you for joining me, despite the many dangers, and agreeing to once more uncork your imagination, to let the dark cordial of your consciousness pour forth, engulf you, carry you downstream, destination unknown. If you are able to relax, please do so. I will attempt to contain my envy, let us proceed. In our first tale, two brothers walk into the woods, but only one comes out, refusing to speak about what transpired. Written by Scott Weiser and performed by Nicole Gulen, Mike Delgadio, Erica Sanderson, and Ellie Hirschman, with so little to go on, it's no wonder they still haven't found Stevie.
It's been three weeks now, and they still haven't found Stevie. The shock they felt at first has worn off. It's been replaced by a sense of dread that never really goes away. The apprehension is like an ambient hum, tuneless and pervasive. It's the air they share. Because missing is sugarcoating the situation, isn't it? A six-year-old boy doesn't play hide-and-seek by himself for three weeks. The woods where he disappeared has neither pond nor river to lure a child to an untimely death. There are no sinkholes or caves. There were no signs of a struggle. No blood or torn scraps of clothing. No freshly turned earth. There was no Stevie. The woods cover many acres. The volunteers turned up by the dozens. They searched for hours. They would have found him. The volunteers who took part in the search effort were mostly friends and neighbors. Though friends and neighbors is a waste of words around here. People use them interchangeably and sincerely. When they talk about what happened to Stevie, what must have happened, they quietly share the hope that it was someone just passing through. The alternative is too terrible to consider. There has been talk about Tommy, of course. How could there not be? Tommy and Stevie were seen walking into the woods hand in hand. Only Tommy walked out. So, yes, people talk. But not with an earshot of Greg and Cheryl, the boy's father and mother. Tommy and Stevie, just a little more than a year apart in age. Well, we like the first one so much. It was a joke Craig used to make, back when there was anything to laugh about. In those better days, Cheryl said that when Stevie was born, Tommy got a little brother and best friend at the same time. She wasn't exaggerating. Tommy and Stevie were each other's preferred playmate and pal. They liked the same books, food, games, and TV shows. They shared everything without quarrel. Even their imaginary friend, Charlie. Perfectly harmless and pretty common at that age, said the school counselor when the boys' folks quizzed her about invisible companions. Cheryl had been the one to suggest meeting with the counselor. Greg hadn't been worried at all. Hey, you know, I had an imaginary buddy when I was little, too. Greg, actually, was the first grown-up to learn that Charlie was in the house. He loved to stand outside the boys' room and listen to their chatter. One night, he heard them talking, but not to each other. Each boy would ask a question. Who are you? Where are you from? And then wait quietly for an answer. Their father spied on them the following night, too. Tommy and Stevie sat facing a corner of their room. Silent except for periodic <laughs> giggles... They seemed, for all the world, to be listening with rapt attention to a storyteller. At breakfast the next morning, their father asked them about their nocturnal antics. Boys, has someone been in your room at night? Charlie! Well, what's he like? Cheryl shared a smile with her husband. The boys considered this a moment. Tommy spoke first. Big. Where does he live? Here now? Prizing honesty over secrecy, Greg and Cheryl didn't press the issue. And after the talk with the school counselor, they even got in on the fun themselves. 
Good night, Charlie became a nightly parental refrain when the boys were put to bed. That Christmas, a stocking labeled Charlie and loaded with sweets was hung on the fireplace, much to Tommy and Stevie's delight. Charlie says thank you. Cheryl thought the boys ate all that candy awfully fast. But why be a scold at Christmas? And so it went for the next few months. Charlie was the family's unofficial fifth member. Then came an early morning near the end of the school term. Sometime past midnight, Stevie began to scream. Cheryl and Greg ran to the boys' room to find both children shaking and sitting upright in their beds. Neither said anything when asked what was wrong. Tommy and Stevie were too busy staring at a corner of the room. They seemed to be listening to something. Or someone. It was just a bad dream. It's okay now. Tommy and Stevie talked about Charlie less and less after that. Even when their folks asked about him. How's Charlie? Fine, I guess. Is Charlie still around? I don't know. What happened? The answer seemed obvious. Tommy and Stevie were growing up. They were putting away childish things. How then to explain what their Uncle Rick overheard? It was Tommy talking to Stevie. Because Charlie said so, that's why. By this time, everybody in the family had heard about Charlie. Uncle Rick didn't think it was anything to make a fuss about. Walking past the boys' room one night, Cheryl heard bits of whispered conversation, too. I promise. She'd meant to ask him about it later. On the day he disappeared, did Stevie seem... apprehensive? When Tommy took his brother's hand and announced that they were going to the woods, did Stevie hesitate? Just the slightest bit? No one could seem to recall. The woods are barely a quarter mile from the boys' home, and familiar stomping grounds for generations of the town's children to play. Cheryl told the boys to be back by supper time. When they didn't come home, she went looking. She was the one who saw an ashen-faced Tommy emerge from the woods alone. Tommy was mute in response to the increasingly urgent questioning from his parents and the police. Where was Stevie? What happened to Stevie? Tommy spoke not a word until the fifth day after the disappearance. He's gone now. The investigators wanted to know where. Not here. The boy has been silent ever since. His parents are beginning to wonder if they lost two sons that day in the woods. They still haven't found Stevie. But they're not giving up hope. Not just yet. The police feel that Tommy must know something he's not telling. Something important. Tommy's father finally snapped. It was during the latest round of questioning with the lead detective in the case and yet another child psychologist. That's it. No more. Tommy didn't do anything. He's a big brother who loves his little brother. And he's a good brother. Lying awake that night in the room he used to share with Stevie, Tommy thought about what his father said. He'd sounded so protective and so proud. It made Tommy happy. The little boy was just beginning to drift off to sleep when his dad lightly knocked on the door. Hey, sleepyhead. Can I come in? 
Greg sat on the edge of Tommy's bed. He patted Tommy on the knee and told him not to worry. I know this is hard, but everything's going to be okay, Tommy. Charlie doesn't mean any harm. He just, he just gets lonely. And, well, sometimes he plays too rough. He did when I was little, too. Tommy's eyes got very big. You're not going to tell on your friend Charlie, are you? No. Good. Charlie wouldn't like that. In our second tale, a sheriff and his deputy interrogate a young woman regarding a series of murders that took place in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Her responses soon become difficult to believe, but impossible to ignore. Written by M.J. Mars and performed by Mike Delgadio, Dan Zapula, and Addison Peacock, just what is it that could possibly be better than Mardi Gras. You ever been to New Orleans Mardi Gras, Sheriff? Just tell us what happened, Janie. Cut the chit-chat. Janie smiled a little, flashing her eyes at Morris. I glanced at my deputy, but he just stared straight into the girl's face, ignoring her flirtation. She was kind of intimidating, in her own cutesy, Daisy Dukes and Pigtails way. Her attitude towards an arrest for first-degree murder? The same as an invitation to take part in a miscongeniality contest. She leaned back in her chair, and her eyes glazed over, shining gleefully while she thought back to the night of the murders, her cheeks flushing with joy, as if she was reminiscing about a snowy Christmas. If you had been to Mardi Gras, you'd know that the streets are so busy and noisy, anything can happen out there and no one would know it. I was walking through those crowds thinking I could strip naked right now and nobody would even glance my way. It was perfect. Plus, near enough every other person I passed was done up to look like Deke. Wadded out face with skeleton eyes and mouth, black top hat like Slash from Guns N' Roses. You know that band, Sheriff? Nope. Now go on with your tail. Irritatingly. November rain jumped into my head. I had to concentrate. She was slippery as a greased rat, and something in that room was making me feel real uneasy. Only difference was, Deke was the real deal. You mean a voodoo priest? You could say that. We prefer Voden, but it all boils right down to the same thing, really. We were there with one purpose. Deke wanted to collect some souls. I snorted. I couldn't help it. Collect souls, my fat ass. Morris leaned forward and placed his palms flat atop the desk. And how would one collect souls? Well, that's where I come into it. Before you can get some souls, you gotta get some people. So you acted like a lure? The girl nodded, her braids bouncing jauntily. First one I found was covered in beads and liquor. Almost passed out on the ground she was. I made a show of picking her up and trying to find her friends, but really I was seeing if they had all just gone off and deserted her, or if they were just waiting nearby. When nobody claimed her, I did. Well, Deke did, really. Explain to me what you did. I told her I was taking her to my place for a coffee and a sleep, you know. 
sober her up a little. She was so far gone, I don't think she even cared where I was taking her. We slipped off the main road and went down the steps to where Deke was waiting. The steps were so dark, she went on and slipped right over, cut the back of her head open before Deke or I even laid a finger on her. I glanced at Morris, thinking of the coroner's report that had identified a blow to the back of the head that didn't seem to match the weapons used on the rest of the body. I felt pretty darn irritated that the investigation team hadn't managed a full sweep of the stairs. Lord knows what else they missed. Morris raised his eyebrows, evidently thinking the same thing, and he turned back to the girl. Then what did you do? Janie folded her arms and pouted her bee stungs a little, glaring at Morris. Deke had told me I could have some fun with them before he got to work. But when I tried to play, he wouldn't let me. Said the first one had to be totally pure, but that I could play around later. He said I had to go out and get another one, sharp-like. And you weren't happy about this? I wonder why he'd even bothered to ask. It was obvious she wasn't happy about it. Whatever her idea of playing entailed, she was royally pissed off that she hadn't gotten to do it. I looked at Morris and wondered if he was getting a cold or something. His voice sounded a little gravelly, and he didn't seem as sharp as he often did at interview. You're darn right I wasn't happy. Janie thumped her fist on the desk. Hey, calm down or I have to put you back in cuffs, Missy. I shot Morris a look. So, back to that night. What happened next? Did you see Deke do anything to Marcella Lucas? That was her name? Pretty. No, I didn't see anything of Marcella until I got back with the next one. He was a boy. Real cutie. I thought if Deke didn't let me do what I wanted with this one, I was just going to walk right out of there and leave him to it. I watched her gaze intently at Morris as she spoke. Her eyes narrowed in that way a domestic cat has of making you unsure if they're playing with you or about to scratch you in the eyes. I realized she rarely even looked my way, even though I was in charge of the interview. I felt a little annoyed. Morris was a good-looking boy. Anyone without cataracts could work that one out. But I wanted her full attention. I was running this show. So, what did you do? And look at me when I'm talking to you. Her head swiveled towards me, and her lips parted with shock, the corners tilting upwards, flirty. Why, Sheriff, ain't you the commanding one? Just answer the question, damn it. Sweat was pooling under my armpits, and I couldn't understand why she was getting to me so much. Just cool it, Bob. I took a long slug from my tepid coffee, careful not to dent the plastic cup in my grip and reveal how tense I was. Which one? The one about what I saw of Marcella or the one about what I did next? Both. She was toying with me, smiling and licking her lips, and it pissed me off. I found the boy at a hot dog stand and made a big show of buying a hot dog, then eating it real seductive-like, you know? Like I was blowing the weenie. I get the idea. So I ask him if he wants to come and fool around, and of course he does. I told him I was better than Mardi Gras. So I takes him down to the room, tells him to watch his step after what happened last time. She grinned. Oh my, he was handsome. I was just dying to get him all to myself. Only it wasn't just yourself, was it? Nope. No, sorry. Deke wanted his part, too. When we got down there, I couldn't see Marcella's body. Most of her he'd put away in the barrel, the leftovers, the bits he didn't need. But he had the brain and some strips of skin and hair on the blanket in front of him. And the boy saw it all there in the candlelight. 
You know the funny thing? <laughs> he tried to protect me. Uh, isn't that hilarious? Tell me another one. I was starting to feel sick to my stomach. She pouted, a caricature, and then inspected her fingernails. Anyway, spoil sport. So he throws himself in front of me, shouting all kinds of things, like I should run away and he would have my back and all. Deke could give me a little knife to carry while I was out collecting, just in case. I took it out of my belt and got him right in the side. She imitated stabbing the boy in the kidney. I opened a manila folder and slid out a glossy photograph, pushing it towards her. This the boy? She leaned over and licked her lips again. Mm. Yeah, that's him. Yummy. I gestured to the picture, bile in my throat. That is 20-year-old Peter Walker, a straight-A student who was about to go to Africa to teach English to needy kids. They would have been lucky kids. Yeah, wouldn't they just? So I pushed him forward, and he almost landed right on that brain, which I thought was funny, but Deke didn't. He had it all set out just as he wanted. He grabbed the boy, Pete, took him round the throat. I yelled that I wanted some fun first, so Deke tied him to the barrel. He was bleeding pretty bad, so he didn't put up much of a fight. She started to wriggle around in her seat, as if she was squirming up against someone. I took off my clothes, and I cut his shirt and pants off at the front. I pressed up against him, and I enjoyed the feel of his blood on my skin. So, I cut him a little more, here and there. A little more? I stared down at the photograph that showed the boy's torso hacked and sliced across pretty much every inch. I didn't kill him or nothing. Like I said, I just wanted to play. She looks down at the photograph with desire in her eyes, as if it were the boy's finest prom portrait. <sighs> then, he went and crapped in his pants. Isn't that just the worst thing ever? I would never, ever, ever do that in a million years. What if Deke asked you to? What was it with his weird damn questions today? The girl's smile froze on her lips. And she stared at Morris uncertainly. He wouldn't. But what if he did? He wouldn't! The girl rose up in her seat a little, and I realized that she had clenched her butt cheeks tight. Stop it! All right, all right. Morris, quit it. Janie, we're gonna take a five minute break, okay? We'll be back shortly. I read the time into the tape recorder and snapped the stop button. Outside the room, I headed straight for the box of cookies in the kitchen, in desperate need of some sugar. I felt completely drained. Maybe I was coming down with something too. Morris stood still beside me, not even going for a cup of fresh coffee. I grabbed the pot from its stand and filled a cup, the bitter smell of the crushed beans reviving me a little. Morris, why'd you have to say that? We know the girl is completely under that guy's spell. She believes in all that hoodoo voodoo shit, and you know you're gonna get her all riled up if you push her. I thought we said we'd go easy on this one. Let her do the talking. I know. I just thought I'd get a reaction out of her. Well, don't. Let's try and keep her calm. Hey, are you feeling all right? You sound like you're coming down with a sore throat or something. I'm fine. Morris plucked a cookie from the box and broke it in two, poking one of the pieces into his mouth and leaving the other one on the table. All right, in that case, let's go back in. And try to keep it together this time. I'll do the talking. The girl was slumped on the table, her head resting on folded arms, her cheeks wet with tears. 
I snapped the tape recorder back on and introduced us again, then sat down and slipped my new coffee cup inside the old. Okay, Janie, you were telling us what happened to Peter. She sniffed and sat back up slowly, looking nervously at Morris. Yeah. Deke grabbed him and cut off some of his hair. He put it in a jar. Then he drilled a hole in his head. Using this drill? I slid another photo from the envelope. The drill bit was crusted brown with blood, a tag on the handle marking it with a D. Yeah, I think that's it. Why did he do that? She glanced at me, uncertainty clouding her eyes for the first time. It's something to do with the soul. I'm not sure. He won't teach me yet. She looked at Morris then, and her expression was one of hurt. He must have really gotten to her with that crapping her pants comment. So you don't partake in the, uh, rituals? Not really. He helped me make an amulet once. I used my daddy's blood and hair to keep him away from me. I didn't want to take that any further, but Morris leaned forward. And did it work? She smiled, sure of herself once more. He died. It worked. <clears throat> you helped Deke find one more victim that night, didn't you? Will you tell me about that one? Last one was a girl I knew from school. She trusted me. I took her down the steps to Deke. That's that. That's that? You didn't want to play with her? She shrugged, twirling a pigtail between her fingers. I was tired. I'm tired now. She turned to Morris. I want to go home. That's not going to happen, Janie. You've admitted to being an accomplice in three murders on the night of March 5th. You are to remain in custody until you're tried by a court of law. Morris mumbled something beside me, something I couldn't quite make out. What'd you say? I looked at him, but his head was bent low to his chest. Morris? I shook his shoulder, worried that he'd gone and fainted on me, but his body was solid under my hand. This is what he said, silly. Before I could stop her, she reached to the tape player, snapped the rewind button, and pressed play. Rusty until you're tried by a court of law. I was certain the voice did not belong to Morris, and a cold shiver shot like an iced ferret down my spine. I spun from my chair and staggered backwards, staring at Morris as he rose slowly to stand. When he turned to me, his features were molding, changing, his sharp nose spreading across his face, his cheeks filling out, his eyes darkening, black circles forming around them as the rest of his skin paled. Janie squealed and clapped her hands into light. <laughs> do it, Jakey, do it! Oh my God, it's been you all along. The figure before me nodded, a smile twisting the painted skeletal teeth along his lips. He moved forwards, and something jingled around his neck, a pendant of teeth and feathers congealed with dried wax. He brought his fingers to the necklace and raised it slowly, then held out his other hand towards me and parted his lips. He blew. The feathers ruffled as his breath passed through them, the teeth clacking together. I felt his breath wrap around me, binding my arms to my sides, pulling the strength from my legs and my neck. I dropped to the floor, unable to move, my eyes wide open. From my place on the floor, I watched him hold out his arm to Janie, and she leaped from her seat and placed her small, fine-boned hand into his. His enveloped hers like a catcher's mitt.
It was a long time before anyone found me. Deke and Janie were long gone, and of course I was unable to explain what had happened. I think about those two often, as I lie here with nothing else to think about. The nurses are usually kind. They turn me gently and tend to my bed sores. They wash my rigid body with suitable grace, averting their eyes as much as possible for the more intimate areas. I have a tube that feeds me directly into my stomach. They can't brush my teeth as my mouth is clenched tight shut. I can taste them rotting away. I once read somewhere that if you don't believe in voodoo, then the power is broken, that it can't hurt you. But how can I not believe after what I've seen? So I lie here, and I wait. Sometimes I think I can hear him coming back from my soul. In our third tale, we meet Juliet, who has recently inherited a house from her great aunt. Beginning the long task of care and upkeep for the property, she discovers a lawn gnome in the backyard that, uh, well, it doesn't seem to want to sit still. Written by Kenneth Cole and performed by Sarah Ruth Thomas and Jeff Clement, this is The Garden Gnome. I stood on the sidewalk, hands on my hips, and stared at the house. How depressing. My Aunt Camilla had passed away just three short months ago. An aneurysm or stroke is what the doctors had said. Camilla had been in her 90s and a spinster. With no husband or children, the probate court had informed me that I was the nearest living relative and had therefore been awarded my aunt's estate. At first, I looked upon it as a windfall. I had hardly even known my aunt, actually my great-aunt, and could count the number of times I had visited with her on one hand. I sadly realized how lonely the old woman's life must have been. Even her closest relative was almost a stranger. Each time I showed up, she would hug me, call me her little Juliet, and ask when I would find my Romeo. I tried to put that feeling behind me when I drove to the small New England town, where my new home was located. I tried to avoid thinking about the point that I was, in fact, not much different from Camilla. My Romeo seemed to have missed the memo. I am an only child. My parents are long since passed on, and I have no real friends to speak of. At the age of 52, I was resolved to the fact that I would be a spinster myself. I had been living on social security income ever since an auto accident in my 30s and had a small apartment that I could barely afford. It was for this reason that I had decided to pack up my few belongings and move into the old house. Looking at the house from the outside, I could see that I had a lot of work ahead of me. In addition to a thorough cleaning inside and sorting through all my aunt's possessions, the yard needed some serious tender loving care the lawn had grown so tall that it had gone to seed, and it was riddled with weeds. 
A row of five things that might have once been considered shrubs were so overgrown that they about covered the house's front porch. The wrought iron railings of the porch that did manage to peek through the bare spots were wrapped in dead remnants of ivy. I rubbed the back of my neck in anticipation of the coming pain. Ah, well, it's not like I don't have time. Hey, free house, right? The first thing that had to go, though, was the ugly old garden gnome that was poking its disturbing head up from the tall grass. It was male, bearded, wearing a red hat and smoking a pipe. I had never been a fan of lawn ornaments, especially gnomes. They were so tacky. This one, though, was especially disturbing. Its glazing was faded and crackled, leaving the face looking jaundiced and wrinkled as if it had once been an actual living creature that had died and was rotting away. Yep, that thing has to go. First things first, though, I don't even own a lawnmower. A week had gone by, and I had all but forgotten about the gnome. I had visited the local hardware store and bought the first pair of hedge trimmers I had ever owned. A man would be stopping by later in the day with a lawnmower he had for sale on Craigslist. I had spoken to him on the phone earlier in the day, and he promised it was in great working order. I had already decided that I would use my feminine wiles when he arrived and try to whittle the price down a little. Not that I have much left in the wiles department. In anticipation of the arrival of the promised lawnmower, I dressed in my recently purchased gardening clothes. I stopped in the front hall and looked at myself in the full-length mirror mounted to the closet door. I had to admit that the work boots, shorts, flannel shirt, and my aunt's old sun hat did look somewhat cute on me. I was still hacking away at the first shrub, which was starting to resemble a real hedge, when a red pickup pulled into the drive. The man who got out of the cab seemed to be about my age, and not too bad-looking either. I pulled off my gardening gloves and jogged down the drive toward the truck. Hey there, stranger. So, I believe you have a mower for me? The man surveyed the yard and let out a long whistle. Yeah, and it sure looks like you could use it. Name's Jim, by the way. You must be Juliet. Yes, um, so how much did we decide on? Twenty-five, but, um, I didn't realize that I was headed to old Camilla's place. I'd about give it to you for free just to see the place cleaned up. Yeah, it's pretty much a hot mess. How's the old bird doing anyway? I bit my lower lip and winced. Oh, she passed away about three months ago. That's why the yard is in such bad shape. I'm afraid that I haven't really had a chance to come out before now. Oh, jeez. Way to go, Jim. Open mouth, insert foot. He removed his baseball cap and ran a hand over the top of his head, ruffling his unkempt hair. I'm sorry. So, are you her granddaughter? (laughs) No, I'm sort of her great-niece, I guess. I never really did see too much of her, but apparently she didn't have any other family. Yeah, yeah, very sad. Hey, let me get this old mower down. Come to think of it, I'll let you have it. Just bought a new one and 
I would have just put it at the curb anyway. I thought I'd try Craigslist first. But uh, you seem like a nice gal. I just wouldn't feel right taking your money. Really? Even without rent to pay, I was still strapped for cash, so I wasn't about to turn down the kindness of a stranger. Especially when it came to cash. That's so nice of you. Jim pulled the mower to the edge of the pickup's bed and heaved it down with very little effort. She still has a little gas in her. How's about I help you tackle this lawn? Oh, no, I, I couldn't. But Jim put up a good fight, and truth be told, I was looking for an excuse to get him to stick around. I hadn't noticed any sign of a wedding ring on his finger, but I decided to test my theory just to be sure. Well, would you like to use my phone? You know, let your family know that you'll be late. If by family you mean a wife and kids, well, then that won't be necessary. Never did get around to settling down. And there's not much of a selection of pretty ladies in this town. Until now, that is. (laughs) My face must have been as red as a beet, but I didn't care. I was beginning to think that moving here might have its perks. I returned my attention to the hedges while Jim started up the mower and began pushing it through the tall grass. It cut out on him several times as he got into the thicker stuff. I was glad I hadn't resisted his offer too heartily. With my neck pain, taming this jungle would have been impossible. When Jim was about halfway through the front lawn, I stood and yelled out to him. Hey Jim! I'm going in to get us some lemonade. Be right back! Jim stopped but didn't turn off the mower. He just smiled and waved back, mouthing the word, okay. As I stood in the kitchen, I stared out the window over the sink and regarded the backyard. It would need as much work as the front, possibly more. I was certain that I could get Jim to volunteer to help. The thought excited me. I had just finished pouring out the second glass of fresh lemonade when I heard the mower stop. I was pretty sure that Jim hadn't finished mowing the lawn yet, So I assumed that he must have run out of gas or hit another rough patch of grass too heavy for the old mower to make it through. Holding one frosty glass in each hand, I made my way through the living room and pushed open the screen door with my hip. I stood on the porch and looked out to see Jim, standing motionless and staring at the ground with a blank look in his eyes. As I approached him, I noticed that he was standing directly in front of the ugly old gnome and gazing as if he were entranced by the malice in its eyes. It's pretty ugly, isn't it? Gah, I didn't see you coming. It is ugly, though, don't you think? Um, it it might actually be considered handsome in a way. He spoke as if he did not wish to offend the statue. His attention began to drift back to the gnome again, but he caught himself and turned away to face me. You know, it seems like everyone in town has one of these little guys but I never noticed one in Camilla's yard before. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised, given how tall the grass was. No, even when Camilla was living here and having the lawn mowed by the neighborhood kids, I never saw it. I would have noticed. I know a little something about gnomes, you know. You might say that I'm even a collector of sorts. I groaned internally. I began to question my thoughts of inviting Jim to stay for dinner that evening. Well, you can have it if you want. I plan to get rid of it as soon as possible. You can't. 
I mean, I couldn't take him. It wouldn't be right. It's very unlucky. Really? Enlighten me, no man. Jim removed his hat, almost reverently, and stared at the gnome as he spoke. Well, gnomes are a class of legendary creatures originating in Europe, which could take on several meanings. Most generally, though, they refer to very small people, usually men, that live in dark places, especially underground, deep in the forest, or more recently, in gardens. Most European ethnic groups have their own gnome legends with local variations. Uh, Despite all the varying forms, gnomes all possess the common attribute of being able to move through the earth as easily as we move atop it. Some gnomes help plants and animals, some help humans, some reclusive ones stay underground, perhaps hoarding treasure. By now, my eyes had begun glazing over, but I was trying to keep up my end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And which type is this little guy? Well, out in the open like this, I'd guess that he's one of those mischievous ones. The sort that plays pranks or even causes harm to humans. Now I stared into his eyes defiantly, but still with a sort of playfulness. Well, great. That's it, then. It goes in the trash tomorrow. No. Please, just leave it where it is. It's probably quite valuable, you know. Most of the people around here have those cheap hardware store gnomes made of resin or plastic, you know. But not this guy. Jim stooped lower to look at the gnome, almost affectionately. This guy is definitely terracotta. And old at that. The artist sculpts a model and then casts a mold around it. Once the mold sets, it's removed, reassembled, and then thin runny clay is poured in. He allows the clay to set against the mold's inner walls for a bit, and then he pours out the excess. So he's hollow? Well, maybe. Unless there's a real gnome inside. I friskily punched him in the arm. Enough! Or he definitely goes in the trash. We drank our lemonade and resumed work on the yard. A few more passes with the mower, a couple more stops for lemonade, and we stood in the driveway admiring our work. We agreed that it wasn't too bad for the first day, and Jim offered to return the next day to tackle the backyard. Oh, you really don't need to. Nope. I started the project. Now I want to see it through. That's the way my daddy raised me. I offered to cook dinner, but Jim begged off, saying that all he needed after that day's work was a hot shower and a soft bed. I paused to wonder if that had a double meaning, but shook off the thought as wishful thinking. So we exchanged phone numbers, agreed on getting back to work in the morning, and parted ways. I chased him back to his truck, though, and gave him a quick peck on the cheek. I couldn't believe how bold I was acting. You're staying for dinner tomorrow, though. I won't take no for an answer. By the time I finished up with my own hot shower, it was dark outside. I toweled my hair dry and put on a robe. Stepping into the kitchen, intending to make dinner, 
I stopped at the rear window to check out the backyard and come up with a preliminary plan of attack. That was when I noticed a pointy, faded red hat sticking up from the tall grass. I immediately ran to the back door, flipped on the jelly jar light, and stepped out onto the rear porch. Sure enough, there was another gnome, identical to the one in the front yard. I was surprised that I hadn't noticed it earlier. Confused, I walked back through the house and out onto the front porch. The gnome that had been there was gone. I realized that the one in the backyard must have been the one previously out front. What the hell? Muddle-headed, I again ran back through the house to the rear porch to examine the gnome in the backyard, just to be certain. When I got back out, it was gone. I ducked inside the door and slipped on my tennis shoes, then went back out for a closer look. Five minutes of walking back and forth through the tall grass turned up no sign of the gnome. After standing still for a minute, thoroughly baffled, I went back inside, locked the door, and turned off the light. As I did the same at the front door, I could swear that I saw the pointy hat sticking up from behind the hedge. I briefly considered stepping outside again, but decided against it when a chill ran up my spine. Too tired to deal with this shit. I locked up, returned to the kitchen, and made a light meal. After a little television, I turned in early. I drifted off to sleep, looking forward to another day of demanding work, with Jim's help. I told Jim all about the gnome the next morning. He told me about the pastime of gnoming. Kids would cruise around town, stealing lawn ornaments from people's yards and moving them around, sometimes taking them from one yard and placing them in another. It was a nationwide fad. In some extreme cases, kids would steal a gnome and travel around, texting pictures of the gnome in various locations, sometimes across the country, to the original owner, or posting them on websites. It was annoying, illegal in some cases, but mostly harmless. Well, another reason that I don't want it in my yard. Maybe the next time the kids take it, they won't return it. I'm telling you, Juliet, it's bad luck. You're better off just leaving him be. Now you're creeping me out. Stop calling it a he. As if the terracotta gnome itself wasn't creepy enough, Jim went on to tell me about so-called real gnomes. He said that gnomes consist of several distinct types. The most common is the forest gnome, who rarely encounters man. The garden gnome lives in old gardens and enjoys telling melancholy tales. Dune gnomes are slightly larger than their woodland brethren are and wear drab clothing. House gnomes have the most knowledge of man, often speaking his language. Farm gnomes resemble their house brethren, but are more conservative in manner and dress. Siberian gnomes associate freely with trolls. They are much larger than the other types and have an infinitely nastier nature. Jim said that it is best never to evoke the ire of such gnomes, for they delight in revenge. So, if all of that is true, then why is it lucky to have one in my yard? Well, garden and house gnomes are very protective, both of their home and the people living in it. Hopefully, he's interested in protecting me and not the house. I slapped myself on the forehead. 
Oh, God. Now you've got me calling it a him. Thankfully, Jim stayed for dinner that evening. Although I desperately wished that he would stay the night, for more reasons than one, I didn't feel comfortable enough to hint at it yet. I walked him to the door, but waited there while he walked to his truck. I felt a little creeped out by the thought of walking outside after dark now. He made it halfway down the drive, then turned around to give a little wave goodbye. I waved back, and then, after staring at the house for a few seconds, he walked back toward me. My heart leapt a little. Um, Juliet? Yeah? I think that your gnome moved again. It's not here. I was really beginning to like Jim, but I was getting a little pissed off about this whole gnome business. I considered telling him to go home and slamming the door, but now, more than ever, I didn't want to be alone. I stepped out and confirmed that the gnome was gone. Do you mind checking the backyard, Jim? No problem. I waited at the front door, and after what seemed to be the longest minute of my life, he popped back around the corner of the house. He's not back there. Maybe you got your wish and the kids took him for good. Oh, that's too bad. I said it for Jim's sake, but I was secretly jumping for joy inside. I was glad it was gone and hoped that the kids who took it never brought it back. So, we wished each other a second goodbye and promised to get together again the next night for a real date this time. Dinner at a restaurant. I watched him walk to his truck and pull out of the drive. I shut the door slowly and flicked off the porch light. Putting my back against the door, I sighed. Aside from the gnome business, the move to this new town, the house, the opportunity for a fresh start, and Jim were all working out quite well. I went to the kitchen and cleared the plates from the table. As I set them on the counter beside the sink, I attempted to resist the urge to look out the window. I realized how silly that seemed, but still. Finally, as if in defiance of my fear, I looked up quickly. There, even closer to the house than the night before, stood the gnome. Jim and I went out the next night. He walked me to the door, but didn't come in. The date did end with a kiss, though, which was pleasant. I was almost as pleased by the fact that the gnome was back in its original position in the front yard when we returned from dinner. I couldn't take much more of this joking around by whomever was trying to prank me. They probably thought that it was funny, but to me, it was not. I had no reason to enter the kitchen that evening, and so I didn't. I even avoided looking out of the rear window of my upstairs bedroom for fear of glimpsing that stupid gnome. I didn't want to spoil an otherwise perfect evening getting upset over it. I had just slipped my clothes off and was about to get into the shower when the doorbell rang. I assumed that it must have been Jim, and so a thousand thoughts raced through my head. Why did he come back? What did he want? What should I do? I pulled on a terry cloth bathrobe and quickly padded down the steps. I flipped the light switch for the front porch and threw open the door, a smile on my face. Well, hello, stranger. Long time no... I jumped back from the door. 
There, on the doorstep, stood that dreadful little gnome. I quickly slammed the door and locked it, leaving the light on, and ran back up the stairs. Grabbing my cell phone and throwing myself on the bed, I punched in Jim's number and waited. It rang six excruciating times before going into voicemail. I hung up and dialed again. This time, he picked up on the first ring. Hey, babe. Sorry I couldn't make it to the phone the first time. I was just walking into the house. Missed me already? Jim, thank God. He's back. He's doing it again. Slow down, Juliet. Who's back? What's going on? The gnome! The doorbell rang. I I answered, and oh my God, he was standing there on the porch. <laughs> Calm down, hon. It's the kids again. They're messing with you. A clay statue can't move on its own. And it sure can't ring a doorbell. <sighs> okay. You're right. I'm being silly, aren't I? Why am I letting this upset me? I'm sorry, Juliet. I shouldn't have filled your head with all those dumb stories. <laughs> Gnomes aren't real. <laughs> I let out a little laugh as I calmed down. I stood up and began to stroll around the bedroom while I spoke with Jim. I reached the rear window and gazed down toward the ground. Holy shit! It's in the backyard again! It's on the back porch! Juliet, stop. Do you want me to come back over there? Yes, please! And please hurry! Okay, just try to hang on. I'll be back in ten minutes. I couldn't bear to be near the windows. In fact, I wanted to be in as small a space as possible. I considered my walk-in closet, but decided that would be overreacting. So I went into my bathroom, locked the door, and sat on the closed toilet seat. I waited and waited, checking my cell phone every few seconds to watch the time go by. Just ten minutes. Just ten minutes. I jumped. It couldn't be Jim. He had only hung up a minute ago. I just knew that it was the gnome again, or the kids who were pranking me. Either way, I wasn't about to answer it. I couldn't tell if it was the front or the back door, but I had a good idea that it was the back. I left the bathroom and poked my head out of the bedroom door. My skin tingled and goosebumps raised up as the knocking started again. It was the back door. I dove back into the bedroom, first slamming its door shut and then locking myself back in the bathroom. The ringing doorbell and the knocking alternated back and forth, back and forth. Then the knocking turned into hammering, as if whomever was there was trying to smash its way through the door. Now the hammering was coming from both the front and the back, again alternating. The doorbell began ringing incessantly. With horror, I realized that when Jim did arrive, I wouldn't be able to tell. Yes, Jim? I'm here, Juliet. I'm at the front door. No kids, no gnome. You can let me in. Thank God! I bolted down the steps and, after turning on the light and carefully pulling back the window shade on the front door, saw Jim standing there on the porch. In a state of near panic, I struggled with the lock, but finally threw open the door and hugged Jim tightly, burying my face in his shoulder. I began to cry. Jim had a duffel bag with him. He planned to stay the night, on the couch if necessary, but I sensed that he could tell I wanted him closer. 
He had barely stepped through the doorway when the hammering on the back door resumed. Oh, that is enough. I'm going to beat the living shit out of whoever that is. He charged toward the back door and yanked it open. Who the hell? There was no one there. We simultaneously realized that we had failed to shut the front door. He was the first to enter the living room, but I was just behind him. My hands flew to my mouth as soon as I came into the room. The gnome was standing there in the middle of the living room floor, a trail of dirt leading from the doorstep to its current position on the carpet. Jim lunged for the statue and picked it up with both hands. The way he picked it up, I could tell that it was heavier than he had imagined. He made for the door and ran out into the driveway. I followed a few steps behind. Screw bad luck! We're through with this thing! He threw the gnome onto the concrete drive with all the force that he could muster. On impact, it shattered into pieces, sending bits skittering across the driveway. Staring down at the aftermath in the cold light of the moon, we were aghast. Our breath caught in our throats, and we were barely even capable of making a sound. Mixed in among the broken shards of terracotta, there were the remains of a tiny, humanoid skeleton. In our fourth tale, we meet a man who has just been released from prison and is now struggling with the annoyance of a clingy co-worker at his gas station job. This co-worker keeps mentioning a coven they are a part of and the satanic rituals performed there. Confused by this seeming mispronunciation, he finally agrees to attend for himself. Written by Dan Leroy and performed by Mick Wingert, Atticus Jackson, Ellie Hirschman, Kyle Akers, and Matthew Bradford, join us for The Santanic Rituals of the Greater Butler County Area. You still coming tonight, right? I sigh through my teeth, give a lady change for her little Debbies and menthol lights. I did or did not tell you I was gonna be there. A dozen times already. Just today. Okay, okay, Rosier. Terry holds up his hands, takes a shuffle step back like he thinks I'm gonna hit him. Probably smart. I outweigh him by at least 80 pounds. Just wanted to remind you, in case you forgot. Uh Uh-huh. The woman squints at her change, then turns abruptly and leaves. It's gonna be awesome, Rosier. You said that a dozen times, too. Guess I did. He cracks his knuckles, still nervous, paces around the four square feet behind the counter. It's one of the things I really don't like about Terry. The nervousness. One of those guys who's always on edge, so he makes you on edge, you know? A real virgin, man. Guaranteed. He's breathing into my ear now, like we're in junior high school and sharing some secret about the girls' locker room. Even though there's nobody else in this BP. I just stare over my shoulder at him, 
That shuts him up, like it usually does. Just fired up, man. Been planning this a while. It's gonna be awesome. He doesn't catch the sarcasm. Guess you can't blame him for that. Terry's not too bright, but on a good day, you can think of him like a stray dog. The mistake with stray dogs, though, is always when you feed one. That's what happened when I started here a couple of months ago. The guy I replaced had been killed the night before. Decapitated, actually. When he drove his hog under a tractor trailer on 376. Two other girls had just left the BP, so Terry was the only employee. Not so good for a 24-hour convenience store, even if it is stuck somewhere up the asshole of Butler County, PA. And especially not good if the one employee is Terry. So I was hired on the spot to fill a four-to-four shift. My lucky break. I was changing my shirt in the storage room when Terry came in to get his stuff. Tall, skinny guy. Mid-twenties, red hair, goatee, gauges. A sleeve on his left arm. Looked like flames. Droopy jaw, reddish eyes. I knew if I got closer I'd smell skunky weed all over his clothes. A guy you wouldn't be surprised to find running the register at a BP at three some lousy morning. Whoa, dude! Where'd you get those tats? I looked up, annoyed. Terry didn't take the hint and came closer. That guy's face! He was pointing at one peck. I knew the one he was talking about, so I raised my arm to block his dirty finger. You gotta tell me who done those, man. He walked behind me to see the ones on my back. I turned to face him. Don't think I can do that. Dude, we're gonna be working together. You can't hold out on me. My face must have showed I sure was gonna hold out on him. Because a light, a real dim one, came on. Prison. Prison? Bingo. I pulled on my new green BP shirt, which stank like polyester in the last guy's B.O. No way. What kind of operation was that dude running? How'd he do it? He was a real pro. I'm not real crazy about talking about it, though, you know? I brushed past Terry into the store and gave him a look. You've heard of guys who don't like to talk about the joint? Oh, oh, oh yeah. I get it, man. Now he was all apologetic. He stuck out his hand again. Hey, I'm Terry. Glad you're here, or I'd be working 24-7. I shook his hand, long and skinny like the rest of them and forced myself not to crush it. Rosier, I took my place behind the register. Just then, a sad-looking guy with blonde-haired twin girls came in to get the restroom key, so I didn't have to play 20 questions with Skunky Terry just then. Or ever, really. After the owner finally hired a couple of other warm bodies, Terry and I only sometimes shared a shift. In spite of me warning him repeatedly, he would always ask me about prison. The dumbest, most predictable stuff, like how many people had I killed there. I told him none. Or how many people I had seen killed. A few, I said. Or did guys really do each other in the showers? I just stared at him until he finally looked away. Or what was I in for? Stealing from my boss, basically.
That's awesome, Rosie. I'd like to clean this shithole out. Go to Mexico, load up on some killer bud. He looked around, nervous as ever, and punched my shoulder real easy like we were friends. Right? Nah. And I thought we got it straight about how it's rosier, never Rosie. Oh, sorry, Rosie. I mean, I mean rosier. He backed out of the store to take one of his five-hourly smoke breaks. Nervous people not only can't stand still, their minds and their mouths can't stand still either. They've always got to be saying something, especially if they're trying to impress you. That was how I found out about Terry's little group. It was one rainy afternoon in late April, when it had almost been an hour since anyone came inside. You ever been to a coven meeting, Rosier? Coven? I didn't turn around. I was filling the icy machine with syrup. Dark, gooey stuff that looked a lot like blood, except thicker. You mean you're a witch, Terry? No, man, like a satanic coven. The way he said satanic, it sounded like Santanic, like the group Santana. I wondered if Terry and his pals all got together and listened to their album, Abraxas. That guy Abraxas really was a demon after all. But I make $7.25 an hour. Not enough to fix Terry's grammar on top of everything else I do around here. Terry came right up next to me. His breath was sour, and I had the urge to gag. We've been meeting for about a year. Secret. Nobody knows. Roger. Ah, oh, shit. I'm supposed to say Coven Master. Whatever. Anyway, we've been doing these rituals. You can find a lot of this shit online. I bet. I walked into the storage room and washed my hands in the tiny steel sink. Terry had followed me like he usually did, and he dropped his voice down low, even though the rain kept pounding against the roof and there weren't even any cars at the pumps. Last time, it was right before Christmas. We had this bonfire out in the field. Shortest day of the year. Sacrificed a goat. And I shit you not, Rosier. The next day, we went back, and there were tracks in the snow. Goat hooves. But only two, man. He stared at me, and his voice dropped even lower. Like it was walking on two legs. I made a face and shrugged drying my hands on a paper towel. Sounds like all kinds of fun, but I don't believe in any of that stuff. Rosier, man, I wouldn't make this shit up. Besides, you have to believe some of this. What about all that ink you got? I know at least some of that stuff is satanic. Satanic, Terry. That's what I said. Anyway, we're gonna do it again on Walpurgis night. That's coming up, but this time... He peeked over his shoulder, scared. Like the manager, Mr. Rainey, was gonna come waltzing in at any moment and say, What's this I hear about a big Santanic ritual, boys? This time, we're gonna raise the stakes some. Derry lifted his eyebrows, like I needed some kind of visual to explain raising. I waited by the sink. Terry leaned in. This time, we're gonna sacrifice a person. And not just any person. A virgin, man. You gonna let him sacrifice you, Terry? It was probably 30 seconds before he got the joke. Weed really does slow you down. Uh, fuck off, Rosier. 
He was trying to look tough, but grinning a little at the same time because he and I had just shared something, a joke, even if he was the butt of it. And I'm telling you because I think you're a cool guy and you'd be into it. You want to summon Satan? This is the way to do it. I almost surprised myself when I finally nodded. But as awful as it was gonna be, I knew I needed to see this. Fine, Terry. I'll be there, I guess. All of a sudden, Terry looked like the kid who had just beat the high score on whatever silly-ass video games kids are playing these days. Grinning like an even bigger idiot than I knew he already was. <laughs> Shit you not, Rosie. This is gonna be epic. We're in a clearing behind two cornfields, a decaying barn, a long strip of pine trees, and a stagnant little lake. Maybe a mile and a half or a couple of miles from Route 422, and about the same distance from the edge of Moraine State Park. It's drizzly out and cold, and Terry's friend Roger, the Coven Master, is having a lot of trouble starting the bonfire. I'm pretty sure we're way too close to the highway here, and that if anything does get underway, Cops are gonna show up fast. The five other Coven members are all just versions of Terry with different bodies and backstories. One balding dude with curly black hair and a black Sabbath hoodie. One Weasley kid with acne who looks like he's 12, but is probably a 30-year-old D&Der. A couple of guys with brown and gray work clothes and features so washed out they look like their faces are made of runny wax. And Roger pop bottle glasses, a huge gut, and grossly long fingernails. But is clearly the nerd in charge. Even the victim is pretty underwhelming. Sounds like a nasty thing to say about someone who's about to be sacrificed to Satan, but really. I know she's been drugged because of how her head wobbles from side to side, swishing her dirty brown hair, and under a few layers of mascara, her eyes won't focus. Your typical underage runaway. The only kind of girl these guys could hope to get. She might be 14, it's hard to tell, even though she's naked. The many homemade tats on her arms make me wonder about the virgin part, too. I didn't ask where they got her, and when Terry tried to tell me, I told them to shut it. I sigh, brush the rain off my pirate's cap. I shit you not, this is definitely not epic. What kills the vibe more than anything else is the folding chairs. Maybe nobody wants to sit on the wet ground during a Santanic ritual, but there are seven tan metal folding chairs set up around the spluttering bonfire. And it just makes you want to smack yourself in the head. I keep waiting for someone to pass around coffee creamer and a box of Tim Hortons. But we sit in the silly chairs. And we listen to Roger recite the beginning of the ritual from a stack of papers he must have printed from the internet that are being held up by one of the waxed-faced guys. Roger has one of those voices that he probably thinks sounds rich and dramatic, but really it just sounds fruity. We offer you this soul in exchange for your holy presence. We reject the craven materialism and lies of this existence to forge a deeper bond with you. Oh, Lord of this world. I also think I hear him say something about Yogg-Sothoth, too. But I guess you can't have a Santanic event these days without a little Lovecraft bleeding into it. 
from inside his black cloak, a Party City special. Roger comes up with a knife. On this one detail, anyway, he seems like he's got it right. It's simple, but wicked-looking. A genuine athem, I think they call it. Double-edged blade, maybe ten inches long. An ebony handle. It flashes in the firelight as Roger chants what sounds like pig Latin. Then he suddenly drags the knife across the neck of the wobbly-headed girl. It's not a clean cut. Black blood starts spurting between her fingers as she reaches up for the wound. The girl gives a weak little moan and goes down on her knees by the fire. It sizzles as the rain suddenly picks up. The guy in the Sabbath shirt curses under his breath. Holy shit. Terry punches my arm, a little harder than usual. His eyes are shiny, and he's grinning and nodding. Like he's saying, I told you so, Rosie. This is probably the high point of his life so far. Roger ignores the girl, who's still on her knees but slumped down and bleeding. There's a dark pool spreading around her dirty knees. Pushing up his glasses with his middle finger, Raj makes his case. We implore thee, yo Lucifer, now at this time of season when the veil between this world and the nether regions is thinnest, to step forth and make thyself benounced to us. He holds the edges of his cape and throws both his arms outward. Abracadabra! Shifting in my damp seat, I look around. In the pale orange light, everyone looks just like Terry. Jaws dropped. Really stupid. I sigh loudly and stand up. Dude, what the fuck are you doing? Everybody else rustles around in their chairs, all confused. I think I hear sirens from somewhere far off, so I know I need to be speeding things up here. Before I can say anything, though, Weaselface looks up at me in awe. Are you he? Are you the lord of this world, whom we have summoned? I've been expecting this. Nah. Then what the fuck you standing for, jackass? I have to admit, I worked a ten-hour shift before coming out here in the rain. And my bones are achy, and I'm a little bit less patient than I would normally be. So I don't say anything to sap the shirt. I just nod. All his cockiness gets shriveled up into a crispy black something that crackles for a minute and turns into big, wide flakes that drift down into the muddy ground. Nobody says anything. Well, nobody but Terry, of course. You, you are Satan! You're satanic! Satanic? For the last time, really? But no, that's not who I am. I feel like I have to correct Terry. I owe him that much. Before nodding again and making a rice crispy out of him, too. It's too bad, though. He's gonna miss the explanation. Guess there'll be plenty of time for that on his next stop. If you guys look on Wikipedia, well, Guess it's a little late for that now. I don't have any service out here either. They mention a demon called Rosier. A minor demon. A demon second class, you could say. Though it hurts me to admit that to you. But still, a demon any way you slice it. Fallen angel, all that stuff. I strip off my long-sleeved black t-shirt. The rest of the coven stares at the tattoos. There's a lot of them. 
And there are a couple new ones somewhere that probably look very familiar to these guys. My employer and I had a... a falling out not too long ago over some stuff he said I took from my job. This, mainly. I tapped the screaming face on my right peck. The face of a guy who lived the kind of life this little bunch of freaks could only dream about. The face of a real sick bastard who didn't just pick up kids from the local Greyhound station, and who, when he caught them, and he caught a lot of them, made sure they suffered for a long time in ways that showed he'd done his homework, and not on the internet either. The face of a guy who was above my pay grade, I guess you could say, but I decided to take him anyway. Not really sorry, either. Terry was right. It's a killer tat. If you could see it, you'd know how much fun I had collecting it. And you know how this goes. My boss decided I needed a little sensitivity training. So that's how I've been spending the last few months. Haven't really enjoyed it much, although prison had a few moments. But luckily, I think I'm just about done learning whatever I'm supposed to learn. Nobody's even looking at each other. But all of a sudden, the weasel makes a break for it. I nod, and a sticky black tumbleweed flops into the last of the bonfire. When I open my fist, I see him again, his face all distorted in complete agony. I smile and make a fist again. My boss isn't going to miss this one for sure. The sirens are getting closer now. I can hear them slicing across the fields. So I do what any responsible citizen would do and clean up the campsite. I do leave the chairs, though. Surely somebody can use those again. Maybe the next AA meeting at the Butler Community Center. Before I walk into the woods, my hooves leaving prints that would really have gotten Terry cranked up, I notice a piece of paper lying outside the ring of stones around the bonfire. I kneel down to pick it up. It turns out to be part of Roger's ritual. The disclaimer. WARNING! says in all caps. These rituals are at best extremely unpredictable. You must proceed with extreme caution, as there is no telling who or what entity you may summon when you undertake a satanic ritual of this type. I'll be damned. So that's where Terry got it. I keep reading. We, the owners of this website, take absolutely no responsibility for what might occur if the rituals described here are not followed exactly as described. Dark magic is nothing to mess with. I set the paper back down by the stones, which are already getting cool, and I slip away through the wet grass, grinning. Who says you can't get good advice on the internet? In our fifth and final tale, 11-year-old Sadie is excited when new neighbors move in with a child close to her age. However, she is soon told that medical problems and dietary restrictions will prevent them from interacting. 
Nevertheless, the pair strike up a deep friendship, which leads Sadie to discover more about the boy's condition. Written by L.P. Hernandez and performed by Addison Peacock, Ellie Hirschman, Nicole Doolin, Aaron Lillis, Jesse Cornett, Sarah Ruth Thomas, and Mary Murphy. Discover the dietary secret of bad apples. Bruce lived in the house next door to mine for more than a month before I first saw him. The house sat vacant since the previous summer when its occupant, Mrs. Kingsbury, passed away. She was older, but not elderly, and so her death was surprising, only because we tend not to think about things like that. There was an estate sale within a month of her passing, and then a realtor's sign was erected on the front lawn. A few contractors and repairmen visited, but then the activity stopped. The grass on the front lawn grew, to my father's great annoyance, until it obscured the name of the real estate agent at the bottom of the sign. It was the week before school began, and the neighborhood kids were doing their best to squeeze the mirth from each minute of those long summer days. We skipped rocks across the pond in the park a few streets over. We climbed trees until we reached the thinnest branches that sagged beneath our weight. We raced down searing sidewalks and displayed our skinned knees with pride. The laughter tapered off quicker than it had in June, when summer was a wide-open field of possibility before us. We went through the motions, but there was a theatrical quality to our actions, as if we were thespians in the final performances of a long-running play. As I pedaled up the hill, I heard the roar of a lawnmower and assumed my father had cracked from the injustice of the overgrown lawn next door. He only mowed our lawn on Saturday mornings after a reasonable breakfast of eggs, an English muffin, and coffee. It was Monday evening, and the sun had just disappeared behind the line of trees, its light an electric orange that reminded me of the popsicles with the ice cream center. I crested the hill and saw that it was not Dad, but the neighbor. A new neighbor. There was a moving truck in their driveway, men with sweat-soaked shirts burying a bookshelf into the house. The man mowing the lawn paused to dab his brow with a handkerchief, then tucked it into the pocket of his jeans. I guided my bike to the front door and waved at the man, who offered a smart salute. I craned my neck to see if there were any toys in the truck, something to indicate the presence of a kid my age, but saw only a slice of a table with a dark cherry finish. I had many friends in the neighborhood, but my particular street was mostly populated by retirees. My mother introduced herself to the neighbors on behalf of our family, offering a pecan pie as if that was a normal choice for the summer. She reported that the couple did, in fact, have a child, and at 10 years old, he was only a year younger than me. Sadie, don't get your hopes up just yet. Why? Mom shared a quick glance with Dad. The boy, Bruce, has some medical conditions. Sounds like it's mostly related to his diet. He's a bit small for his age and might not ever be able to keep up with you. 
Not to say you can't be friends, but it will have to be on Bruce's terms. He spent much of his life in hospitals and is mostly associated with adults in his life. What's up with his diet? Allergies? Dan and Grace made it seem like it was more severe than that. Just be patient, honey. He'll come around in time. Summer concluded to the teeth-rattling sound of my alarm clock. I stood at the bus stop, devastated, demoralized at the sight of the approaching bus. My days were soon filled with homework and after-school sports. I forgot about Bruce until that Saturday in September. The lawnmower's engine died, and I heard the familiar sound of my dad stomping on the entryway mat. He passed me in the hallway, pointing at his white New Balance sneakers that were now streaked with forest green. I rolled my eyes. Super cool, Dad. The freshly mowed grass littered the backyard in sticky clumps that threatened to make my shoes a companion to my dad's. I climbed the rope ladder to my lovingly crafted but rarely visited treehouse. I rummaged through comics, their pages yellowed and brittle. I munched from a bag of Doritos whose expiration date was too faded to read. Wiping my orange fingers on my shorts, I gazed upon the roofs of houses. I noticed the mask in the second-story window of our neighbor's house and thought it a bit early for Halloween decorations. It was a rudimentary thing, like a paper plate with eye holes and a mouth cut out. Then it vanished, and I realized it was a face. The face of Bruce, the unseen boy. He was so pale, he practically glowed. I watched the window for a few minutes, but detected no new activity. I dismissed the apparition and stacked my comics back on the shelf. As I reached for the rope ladder, a voice called up to me. Hello? <gasps> I pressed my hand to my chest. He stood in the shade of my tree, though on his side of the fence. You scared me! He shrugged. My name is Bruce. Sadie. What are you doing up there? I hadn't really been doing anything, but made something up on the spot. Keeping a watch on the neighborhood. Looking for strangers. Do you ever see any? Once. There was a man in a dark suit who walked down the street. He had a briefcase with him. A minute after he reached the end of the street, he would appear at the beginning of it again. I watched him for two hours. I glanced at him to see if he bought it. He looked toward the street, but likely couldn't see much beyond the top of his fence. I'm kidding. I'm just hanging out, reading comics and eating chips. He smiled and mimed, wiping sweat from his brow. Want to come up? 
He looked over his shoulder, and I noticed the figure in the sliding glass window. It was Grace, his mother. Well, I do, but... Do you need to ask permission? Grace stood at the window, watching, her arms relaxed by her side. I should probably stay in my yard. That's okay. I can talk to you from here. Really? Sure. His Batman pajamas looked as though they were borrowed from an older brother, though I knew him to be an only child. His voice was small, but confident, like a cartoon mouse that always manages to gain the advantage over its fumbling feline rival. I remained in my perch until Mom called me inside for breakfast. He issued questions almost faster than I could answer. I understood he was homeschooled and had fleeting contact with children his own age. I empathized with his curiosity and attempted to paint an elaborate picture for him. He did answer the few questions I proposed, though he looked over his shoulder as if he feared his mother would hear through the glass. Most foods make me sick. I can only eat what my parents prepare for me. Sick like how? Like you'd need an ambulance? He glanced over his shoulder. Grace had not moved from the sliding glass door, though she appeared to be engaged in conversation with someone in the house. Just sick. It sucks because there's so much I never got to try before. Got to try before what? I expected him to say before he was diagnosed with his condition, which had gone unnamed to that point. Before I died. <laughs> what? Well, I didn't stay dead. You died? For a bit. When they brought me back, the food thing came with it. Did you see anything when you were dead? I was leaning so far out of the treehouse, a gust of wind would have sent me crashing to the earth. He nodded. Yes, but I don't remember. It comes back in dreams sometimes. I had a million questions to ask, but my mother chose that moment to announce breakfast was ready. Can you come back out later? Maybe. My mom's pretty protective of me. I'm surprised she let me talk to you this long. Hey, I have an idea. I have walkie-talkies we can use. They're cheap plastic ones, only go about 100 feet. But that would be plenty between our houses. He nodded, smiling as I shimmied down the rope ladder. I'll leave yours on your side of the fence. It gave him a wave over my shoulder as I sprinted back to the house. Nice to meet you. You too. I didn't see Bruce again for a week, but we were in constant contact via the walkie-talkies. His was a worldview I had never known. Much of his life had been lived in an antiseptic white room, his breaths ushered in and out of his lungs through the labor of machines. He was equally fascinated by the relative normalcy of my life. He often requested I recount the details of a particularly contentious soccer match. Perhaps he imagined himself on the pitch in my place, 
his minuscule frame darting through defenders as I had done. Inevitably, the conversation returned to him and that simple, staggering fact of his death. So you were at home and your heart stopped? I lay in my bed, eyes fixated on the ghostly streaks of paint on the ceiling. For a couple of minutes. And the doctor just showed up? Yeah, he was my new doctor and wanted to introduce himself. I feel like I kind of remember him. Like I was outside my body when he came. But he's just sort of a blank space. I can see my parents react to him, but I can't see him. That's so crazy. You die, and one of the only people in the world capable of saving you shows up at your house. I eyed the yellow slab of light beneath the door. I was supposed to be asleep, but it was a Friday, and I doubted my parents would mind. They encouraged my blossoming friendship with Bruce. I guess it is. But it's only crazy because I lived. If he hadn't brought me back, it wouldn't be that interesting. Sad, but not interesting. I learned more about his family and what inspired them to settle in our small town. Dan, his father, was a pilot. He commuted one and a half hours to Denver and was often gone for two or three days at a time. He had one day off at home and then was back in the air. He recently completed a purchase on a small jet, preparing to transition to becoming a private pilot. Why not just live in Denver? Bad memories. Hospital life took a toll on everyone, not just me. Plus, I died in that house, you know? I think my parents just want me to have a normal childhood. As close to normal as I can get. We don't really think about my condition as much out here. By the end of September, we had each changed the AA batteries in our walkie-talkies twice. Bruce and his family came over one Sunday to watch football. Dan appeared relaxed, slapping my dad on the back and loudly bemoaning the play calling when his team didn't benefit from it. Oh, come on, ref. Are you blind? Grace hovered near my mom, but her eyes seldom strayed from her son. I imagined she had once been a striking beauty, but the years of witnessing her only child deflate before her eyes had robbed her of something. She covered her mouth when she smiled, which was a rare occurrence. She molded herself into as small a physical shape as possible, her arms glued to her torso, her knees slightly bent. It was as if she had tiny coiled springs for bones. Over the course of the previous week, Bruce and I had devised a plan that we executed that day. Mom, can I go trick-or-treating with Sadie on Halloween? Grace fumbled the plastic cup in her hand, some of its contents spilling onto the tiles. Her jaw was slack, eyes swollen in disbelief. I stood next to Bruce, my chin about level with the crown of his head. It would only be for a few hours. Grace looked first to the living room. Dan was on the edge of the couch, a corn chip, hovering a few inches from his lips as he awaited the verdict of a challenged play. She then looked to my mother, whose countenance began to mirror the woman's obvious concern. 
Bruce, honey, I think that's something we should talk about at home. You know you might have trouble keeping up. We certainly wouldn't want to interfere with Sadie's fun. She's the only friend I've ever made. His head dropped on cue. I draped an arm around his shoulders, and he leaned his small body into me. Grace's eyes darted from her husband, still unaware of the unfolding catastrophe, to my mother, who seemed unsure if she should smile or frown in that moment. What if we just did our street? I'll walk with Bruce around the neighborhood and bring him right back to you. Thirty minutes, tops. Grace nodded, the intensity of her anguish diminishing. But, honey, your diet... I wouldn't eat anything. I would just give it to Sadie. I just want to be a kid on Halloween. Grace relented to the pressure of the moment, and we darted back to my room to finalize our plans. That night, I chatted with Bruce via walkie-talkie. His excitement over Halloween, still more than a month away, had not diminished. We said our goodbyes at about 9 o'clock, and I settled into bed. This had happened a few times previous. The walkie-talkies were cheap toys, and sometimes the button on Bruce's got stuck, meaning he broadcasted inadvertently. The week before, I listened to his mother tell him a bedtime story, before the button released and the transmission terminated. That night was different. I suspected Bruce carried the walkie-talkie in the pocket of his pajamas, because there was a constant scratching sound of the fabric rubbing over the microphone. transmission ended as the button popped back into place. I placed the walkie-talkie on the nightstand and reclined in bed. In a matter of weeks, Bruce had become my best friend. We didn't speak often about his dietary restrictions. It simply wasn't interesting conversation. I knew he could not eat most foods. What did he eat? Autumn descended on the front range of Colorado. Flurries of golden leaves skittered through the streets until the rain came. In the week leading up to Halloween, a blanket of clouds the color of dryer lint obscured the distant Rocky Mountains. The dancing leaves were molded to the earth, 
held in place by cold, fat drops. Bruce confessed that his mother had threatened to cancel our Halloween scheme if the weather didn't improve. She tolerated the idea of her only child being out of sight for half an hour, but he would not be cold and wet. Fortunately, the clouds dispersed two days before Halloween, and an Indian summer took root. By Halloween, our air conditioner thrummed. I couldn't convince Bruce to change his costume. He had no interest in the macabre and was stone-faced in my suggestions for a humorous alternative. He was a cat. Of all the possible costumes, he went as a cat. I'm almost positive Grace found the costume in the girls' section of the Halloween store, but he was ecstatic with it. He wore the tail and ears for days. He randomly meowed through the walkie-talkie. More than once, I pressed my face to the glass of my window in search of a stray cat outside. Had I believed he was serious about the cat costume prior to selecting mine, I might have chosen a companion, a dog, or a rat. Instead, I was a zombie. Dad sacrificed a flannel shirt to the cause, and I was given permission to tarnish a pair of jeans, which were a size too small. Grace escorted Bruce to our front door. I answered the knock and found her staring at the sky as if willing the clouds to reassemble. I lurched at Bruce with arms outstretched and he scurried away. He whipped his tail at me and hissed. Don't get yourself worked up, honey. And remember... No eating candy. Trick-or-treating began at six o'clock when it was still fairly light out. Bruce and his mother congregated in our entryway for 15 minutes until the porch lights came on. We skipped down the driveway. My mother took pictures while Grace propped herself against the doorframe and cradled her stomach. Bruce grasped my hand as we turned onto the sidewalk. I glanced over my shoulder to wave at my mom and saw that Grace was smiling. Somehow, she still looked sad. Bruce pulled me forward like a stray dog on a leash. We scaled the driveway to Mrs. Chapman's house, and he was nearly breathless from the effort. Trick or treat! Oh my! Sadie, I hardly recognized you. And who's your little friend? I'm Bruce. I'm new in town. Well, welcome to the neighborhood, Bruce. Mrs. Chapman gave us a wink and released a handful of miniature chocolates into each of our bags. Bruce was marveling at the contents of his pillowcase as we walked to the next house. I can't believe it really works like that. You just walk up to someone's house and they give you candy? I kind of thought it only happened in movies. Bruce delighted at every Halloween decoration. He giggled at the goofy epitaphs on styrofoam tombstones and squealed at the blinking red eyes of a plastic Dracula. As we neared the cul-de-sac at the far end of our street, I picked up the pace a little. What's the rush? Mrs. Dubois, my old babysitter. She makes candy apples for Halloween, but only two dozen. If we don't get there quick, the other kids will get them. There were four children at her front door and no telling how many had already visited. We dashed up the driveway, passing the kids as they departed. They held their candy apples aloft like torches, Tootsie Rolls and Jolly Ranchers forgotten for the moment. 
Mrs. Dubois stood in the doorway, her brown hair streaked with gray and piled atop her head in a loose bun. She held an empty tray in her hand. Hi, Mrs. Dubois. Are we too late? Sadie, I... My head drooped. Of course not. She stepped aside to reveal a second tray with a dozen bright red candy apples. Mrs. Dubois swapped the empty tray for the full one and lowered it slightly so I could take my pick. My fingers danced over plastic stems. The candy apples didn't look real. They were too perfect. Thin, white fingers brushed up against mine and liberated an apple from the tray, which canted for a moment until Mrs. Dubois stabilized it. Wow. You're welcome, little cat. I claimed an apple with the largest pool of hardened candy coating at its base. Thank you. Happy Halloween. I joined Bruce back on the sidewalk. His lips glistened with saliva that threatened to spill out of his mouth. He beheld the candy apple as if his mind did not understand the concept of its existence. Did you ever eat candy? Yes, before I died. My parents didn't give it to me much, but I did have some. Sometimes the nurses snuck it in. What was your favorite? Jolly Ranchers. He beamed at me. I nearly dropped my apple as Bruce opened his mouth and sank his teeth into the ruby-red candied surface. He closed his eyes and wrenched a chunk of the apple's flesh free. He chewed slowly and moaned as he did. Mm. Bruce, your diet! Mm. He swallowed, and his half-lidded eyes found mine. It's so hard, Sadie. So hard to live like this. He buried his teeth into the apple again, juice running down his chin in twin streams. Your mother is going to kill me! She's going to kill us! She said no candy. She didn't say no candy apples. I nodded the adrenaline leveling in my body. What's going to happen to you? He shrugged his shoulders and took a third bite, then began to walk toward the next house. We didn't have to wait long to find out. The apple toppled to the earth, its candy facade cracking as it rolled to a stop in the grass. Bruce hunched over and I rushed to his side. His body trembled as he gasped wetly. Bruce, what do I need to do? I pressed my hand against the small of his back. He shook his head, stood a bit straighter, then opened his mouth. A torrent of red exploded with volcanic force. It splattered on the sidewalk and then the grass as he turned slightly. Within the rapidly growing red puddle were crimson clots of apple and fractured bits of candy. A smell of old pennies washed over me. His little chest heaved during a brief respite. Then he groaned, his cheeks puffing out with gore that he tried to keep within. His head whipped back and forth like an unsecured fire hose. I pivoted and scanned the houses near me. There were no trick-or-treaters within earshot, no open doors. The word help bubbled in my throat, but I did not utter it. Bruce spat one final time and then stood erect. 
He wiped his thumb across his lips, and a shudder racked his body for half a second. Worth it. He retrieved his pillowcase, which had fallen behind him, and gave me a smile. Ready? I looked to the red soup on the sidewalk. It didn't seem possible that so much liquid could fit within such a small boy. Bruce, what happened to you? Allergies. I imagine the puddle of what I assumed was blood would likely be dismissed as spilled juice by passersby. I jogged to catch up with Bruce, not comprehending how he was so unaffected by what transpired. The next ten minutes passed normally. Bruce showed no ill effects from the episode, and I said nothing because I could think of nothing to say. We reached the houses on the opposite side of the street from ours, and he proudly offered me the contents of his pillowcase. That was better than the movies. Thank you so much, Sadie. He skipped across the street and ran to greet his mother, who waited in the doorway. Prior to reaching her, he stopped turned, and wagged his tail at me. Back home, Mom greeted me as I walked inside. How did it go? Um, good. Bruce gave me all his candy, so I think I'm okay for the night. Mom arched an eyebrow. Not going back out with your other friends? Not this time. Think I'll head upstairs. I held a rag beneath a warm stream of water and stared at myself in the mirror. I replayed the scene in my head on a loop. Bruce's cat ears askew on his head as it thrashed about. I saw the candy apple, its white handle stained with streaks of red on its side in the grass. I saw Bruce lurch and the gush of crimson. The sound of it was like a saturated mop slapping a tiled floor. I wiped the gray and green makeup from my face, wanting to put Halloween behind me as quickly as possible. I dropped the rag over the faucet and ran to my bedroom. Sadie? I'm here. Sadie, I just wanted to tell you that tonight was the best night of my life. Sorry for the stuff earlier. Don't worry about it. I'm okay. I had a good time too, Bruce. I waited for more, but he said nothing. Bruce? Was that... blood? Good night, Sadie. Thanks again. When I pressed the button to transmit, I was met with a steady tone that meant Bruce's walkie-talkie was still triggered. I returned to the bathroom and removed the rest of the zombie makeup. At two to three minute intervals, our doorbell rang. 
Within ten or so seconds, the voices of children echoed within the house. I tossed the shredded shirt into the laundry hamper. Maybe next year I would just hand out candy. The walkie-talkie had been silent over the past hour or so. I fell asleep without having realized it. His voice was not clear, likely originating in the hallway outside of his bedroom. Your father will be home soon, dear. But I'm hungry now. I imagined him playing with his toys, but there was a blank space in my thoughts. I didn't know what kind of toys he played with. I had never been inside of the house, much less his room. Bruce didn't talk about himself much. I sat up in bed. If I had vomited blood, I would likely not be thinking of food for some time. I saw the images again, heard the wet mop sound. The springs of my bed squealed as I flipped over and rested my chin on the top edge of the headboard. I parted the blinds with two fingers and saw the milky yellow glow of a lamp in Bruce's room. I watched for his silhouette, but realized the light source was too near the window. Light flooded the alley between our houses and I recoiled, the blinds snapping back into place. I imagined Bruce in the window his pale face staring out as when I first saw him weeks ago. I clenched my fists and eased another few inches away from the window. The garage door opener thrummed to life and I realized the light was from the headlights of Dan's Jeep. I parted the blinds again and watched the Jeep vanish within the house. Finally. There was nothing to see but vinyl siding. No windows with the curtains errantly parted. Was that a baby crying? The blinds snapped back into place again as I abandoned my post. I sagged beneath the implications of the sound. I could think of no reason, no good reason, why a man would retrieve an infant in the middle of the night. Perhaps the baby was family? Sure, but why the midnight voyage? And where was the child's family? And why had Bruce whispered that single word? I replayed the sound in my head as I stared at my ceiling. As I did, its texture changed. It was less harsh, less desperate. It was an animal. Had to be. I rolled on my side and stared at the walkie-talkie. Silent then. Bruce was no longer transmitting. It had to be. I avoided Bruce for the next week. He attempted to contact me via the walkie-talkie, but I didn't respond. Sadie, are you mad at me? I stared at the walkie-talkie. Did I do something wrong? 
The Indian summer relented to the winds of autumn. One frosty November morning, I opened my blinds to let light into my room. Bruce was in his backyard, his figure consumed by a puffy red jacket. He walked the inside border of the yard, head down and hands buried in his pockets. And he walked. And he walked. I watched him for ten minutes and his pace never wavered. In the previous week, I convinced myself that Halloween had been a misunderstanding and nothing more. Bruce was allergic to just about everything. It was the first thing we were told about him. If vomiting blood was the result of eating outside of his diet, it made sense that Grace hovered so protectively over him. As for the screaming, there was nothing to rationalize. Either I misidentified the sound or there was an explanation for it. Bruce stopped, turned, and withdrew a gloved hand. He waved, and I found myself waving back. How long had he known I was watching? Then he resumed his solitary march, hands in pockets, head bowed. Here was a little boy, isolated from the world, walking infinite laps within the confines of his own backyard. I was his only window to the outside, a sliver of normalcy in a life that had been anything but. I shrugged into a sweater, donned my jeans, and skipped down the steps. Bruce? Through the narrow gaps in the wooden fence, I saw him pause. Sadie? He jogged to the fence his torso twisting awkwardly as his arms were not free to move. He pressed his nose into the gap between the slats. I thought you were mad at me. Just confused, I guess. The vomit thing was pretty scary. He withdrew his nose a little. Not for me. It took months before we figured my diet out. I threw up everything. So, what do you eat? I didn't ask the question. Sadie, can I tell you something? My heart beat faster. Of course. I lied to you about when I died. I did die, but I lied to you about one part of it. When I died, I was outside of my body. That part was true. I mentioned the doctor that showed up at our front door. That was also true. But I said I didn't remember him, what he looked like. I do. It's just something I don't like to think about. What did he look like? Not a doctor. Why are you telling me? His nose peeked through the fence again. My mom's waving for me to come inside. We have to go back to Denver for a couple of days. Okay. Sadie? Can we be friends again when I come back? Sure, Bruce. He dashed to the sliding glass door. I climbed up my tree a few feet so that I could see over the fence. Bruce clenched a glove in his teeth and pulled it off his hand. He plucked something from the soil of a potted plant and returned to the sliding glass door. After he opened the door, he returned the object, a key, I assumed, to the dirt. The curtains fluttered behind him as he disappeared inside his house. 
A chilly wind gave life to the dried leaves fastened to their branches by brittle stems. They shuddered, sounding like a den of angry rattlesnakes. I watched the house from my perch, a hard plastic stool designed for a toddler one-third my weight. The curtains twitched as an unseen person walked by, but otherwise, the house was still. Not a doctor. I shivered. It would be at least a couple of days before Bruce could elaborate on his story. A couple of days that his house would be unoccupied. The potted plant was like a beacon. The garage door hummed open and Grace's white sedan backed into the street. There was a glare on the window, and so I couldn't see if Bruce was waving at me. But I waved anyway. A couple of hours later, I paced my room. The idea in my mind was like an itch that I could not reach. It demanded all of my energy. I glanced through the partially open blinds as if I expected the house to sprout legs and sprint away. Of course it didn't, but I watched anyway. Then I bolted for the back door. Mom, I'm going to the playground. Which one? The big one with the blue slide. If I'm not there, I'm at Kelsey's house. I closed the door behind me. In the few hours I had been indoors, the day had grown colder. My breath issued in little spectral puffs. I scaled the fence that divided my yard from Bruce's and landed on grass still billowy from the early autumn rains. I padded across the yard to the potted plant and spied the top edge of the key in the soil. As I turned the key, I wondered if the house might have an alarm system. I never heard an errant chirp in the background of my walkie-talkie conversations with Bruce. It was a safe neighborhood, almost depressingly so. Having an alarm system might arouse more interest than not having one. I opened the sliding glass door and eased inside tucking the key into the front pocket of my jeans as I did. What was my purpose here? To be honest, I didn't know. I explored the first floor, which was handsomely decorated in muted tones of gray and black. I surveyed the pictures on the mantle above the fireplace and along the walls. The sadness I felt manifested in my chest as a swelling sensation. In all but the most recent pictures, Bruce was in a hospital setting. In one picture, he sat on Santa's lap, a wisp of a boy in a Christmas sweater that threatened to consume him. His parents stood off to the side, smiling practiced smiles. A nurse in pistachio green scrubs was visible in the background shattering the facade. There were a dozen similar pictures. Birthdays, Easter, Thanksgivings served on a tin tray from the hospital cafeteria. And then there was me. What? The picture was taken less than two weeks ago, yet here it was. Bruce and I posed in our costumes his tail a blur of motion. 
I felt like an intruder. I reached inside my pocket for the key, and then I recalled what happened 20 minutes after the picture was taken. I remembered the scream, cut off by a door slamming. I placed the key back in my pocket and resumed my search. Exiting the living room, I was confronted by a door that was slightly smaller than the others. There were minor layout differences between that house and mine, the same parts rearranged slightly. I guessed this was the door to the basement. I kneeled before it. There was a padlock affixed to a safety hasp. Judging by the chipped paint around the hasp, this feature had been recently added. The padlock was secure, but the hasp had been left open. I turned the knob, and the door opened. A wooden stairwell descended into darkness before me. There was a light switch just inside the entrance. I flipped it on, and the basement flooded with light, phosphorescent bulbs buzzing audibly. I closed the door behind me and walked down the stairs. My attention was immediately drawn to a wall-mounted desk. Ancient books populated its shelves. One rested on the desk. Its title, in flaking gold letters, read, Germanic Folklore During the Black Death. I found an entry with a dog-eared page. There was a simple sketch of a figure wearing a black cowl. A plague mask emerged from the hood, but few other details were visible. Below the illustration was the title, The Healer. Versions of this legend predate the era of the Great Plague. It seems the healer is a popular character in myth in various guises across the globe. He arrives at a time of intense peril, typically at a moment of life or death. It is obvious, then, why his presence would be associated with the Black Death, as peril was the permanent state of much of the European continent. The name is a misnomer to an extent. The healer does heal, but at a cost. In essence, he is more of a trickster than a healer. Alleged to arrive right at the moment of passing, the healer targets loved ones of the departed, offering them a unique opportunity. The healer will return the dead to life with no debt owed to him, but that does not mean there are no consequences. The newly living come back different in unpredictable ways. One tale recounts a young mother who returned from the dead and believed herself to be a rat. She was often found naked, swimming through garbage with her furry brethren. Her forlorn and frightened husband moved to another town, an effort to protect his child. One night, he awoke, suffocating beneath the weight of a thousand rats and saw, in brief glimpses, the ghostly pale shape of his wife as she fastened her teeth around the baby's neck and ferried it into the night. In another story, a mother wakes from a deep sleep to find her recently resurrected son has nibbled off three of her toes. She screamed and hobbled out of the room, leaving the boy to lap at the small puddles of her blood. I stopped reading. 
I had no issue with the possibility of apples making Bruce vomit. I could not accept, however, that his body's allergic response would be to immediately eject a quart of blood. The body doesn't work that way. But what if the blood was already in his stomach? There was a map of North America plastered on the bare brick wall. Three penciled lines connected Denver to three towns in northern Mexico. Written above the lines were distances in miles, followed by weights in pounds, the meaning of which I didn't understand. Did it have something to do with Dan's job as a pilot? The key was in my hand again, though I didn't recall retrieving it. I left the desk to explore the rest of the room. There were metal shelves with spare light bulbs, canned goods, and the like. Translucent tubs of holiday decorations were stacked against the wall. In the center of the room were what I guessed to be relics from Bruce's baby years. I glanced a second time at the bassinet. There was a metal grate on top, secured shut with a padlock. What the... The changing table next to the bassinet had also been modified, with the addition of three leather belts. Restraints. The sound came back to me, the scream that ended at the slamming of the door. The key was hot in my hand. My elbow bumped a rolling tray table, tipping its contents, rubber tubing, IV catheters, and opaque blood bags to the floor. I walked backwards, away from the baby items and medical accessories. My extremities tingled, and it seemed the oxygen had been siphoned from the atmosphere. I collided with a standing freezer and grunted in surprise. I had to know. My hand grasped the long, white handle of the freezer. I pulled, but the freezer door remained shut. I pulled again, and the entire appliance rocked, but still didn't open. I jammed the key in my pocket, gripped the handle with two hands, and wrenched. The freezer tipped forward several inches, but was prevented from crushing me by the open door, which contacted the floor. The contents of the shelves toppled free. Garage door. I heard it, but couldn't move. The baby inside the plastic bag was frozen, with its small hands balled into fists covering its face. A thin layer of frost had grown over the thick mane of ebony hair. There was more that was wrong about it than its frozen state. Its legs were malformed, like the tail of a seahorse, and they curved toward its spine. It also seemed compressed, deflated, drained. There were other bags, their contents coated with frost. My stomach lurched, but I had nothing to expel. I was broken from my trance. I uprooted my legs from the floor and sprinted to the other end of the room, hiding behind the metal shelving unit. crouched and clamped a hand over my mouth as the door to the basement opened. 
the lights. It was Dan. Bonnie? My vision narrowed. My limbs felt weighted with blood as my adrenaline surged. Bruce said, we have to go to Denver. He did not state which we that entailed. Bruce? He would see. He would see the still open freezer door and the frozen baby in the bag. Then he would search. And he would find me. Hey, hey, Grace, did you leave the lights on in the basement? Maybe it was Bruce. You guys in Denver yet? He was on the phone now. I peeked around the shelves. He stood with one hand on the wall, staring at the map. Okay, you said you'd be there two days. If he stayed like that for ten seconds, I could sneak behind him. getting too nosy. He would eventually turn and see the open freezer, the blood bags on the floor, and the baby. I get it. He has other health concerns. I just don't want them getting too close or running a test that might give it away. I stepped around the shelves and into the main body of the basement. If he turned his head to the right, he would see me. It's what we have to do right. Maybe it'll be different in the future. You know I hate it too. I was within ten feet of him. I never realized how tall he was, even bent over at the waist. I took an exaggerated step over a surgical blade that had fallen on the floor. Like, I think I have one in Sonora. Eight hundred dollars. Sixteen weeks old. I gritted my teeth. I was directly behind him as he stood upright. I know, Grace, but they're going to die anyway. These aren't healthy babies. Nothing else works for Bruce. I took two more steps and was now to his left. He placed a finger on the map. I would do anything for him. <sighs> yes, I, I know you would too. The stairs were half a dozen steps to my left. Had the wood popped or squeaked earlier? I didn't remember. My muscles vibrated. Okay, well, let me know when you guys get there. He placed a quivering foot on the first step, never taking my eyes off him. Tell him I love him. Dan turned around and might have seen me if he was not immediately distracted by the mess on the floor. He ended the call and stepped forward. I was likely an unmoving blur in his peripheral vision. Oh, shit. I waited, afraid to breathe. He looked to the left of the shelving unit that had been my hiding place a minute before. I bolted up the stairs, not caring about the noise. I knew he would look to the right next. Hey! My body was electrified. I burst through the door and darted down the hallway. The front door was a mile away, but I covered the distance in three seconds. I fumbled with the lock as Dan exploded through the basement door. I slammed the front door closed and raced across the lawn. The distance to my house was too great. 
I knew he would see me before I reached it. Instead, I hooked to the right and leapt at the fence to the backyard. I was weightless. It was an effortless, fluid motion. I landed on the grass and resumed my sprint. I locked the sliding glass door behind me, stumbled into the dining room, and collapsed into a heap on the floor. I retched, but only spittle trickled from my mouth. I wanted to cry out to my mother to not answer the door, but was certain he would hear me. I pushed myself off the floor, kicked off my shoes, and padded through the kitchen. There was a dark silhouette visible through the narrow window of pebbled glass. He cupped his hands around his face and peered through, but would only see vague shapes. The form left, and the breathing straining my lungs rushed out of my mouth as if I'd been punched in the stomach. There was a note on the kitchen island. Sadie, Dad and I went to grab a bite for dinner. We will be back before dark. Love, Mom. I lifted the phone from its cradle. How would I explain it to the police? The story was ridiculous. Unbelievable. How could I convince them to check the basement? <clears throat> I cleared my throat, took a breath, and dialed 911. I crafted a story about screams coming from the basement next door. The operator yawned as she repeated the address back to me and told me she would send someone out. I watched from the safety of my bedroom. A patrol car arrived 45 minutes later, flashed its lights once, then parked in the driveway. A single officer emerged from the car and was greeted by Dan. He nodded his head vigorously and motioned for the officer to follow him. My parents arrived as I watched the house, chirping curiously about the police car in the neighbor's driveway. I hope everything's okay with Bruce. The cop appeared in the driveway as the sun dipped behind the mountains to the west. He was smiling. Dan waved as the car backed out of the driveway. It left in silence, headlights stabbing yellow cones in the gathering darkness. I returned my attention to Dan, who was looking directly at me. I squealed and dipped beneath his sightline. Hours later, I lay in my bed. I decided not to tell my parents. They wouldn't have believed me anyway. sat up in bed. I would do anything for my son. I never saw Bruce or his family again. By midday, there was a moving truck in the driveway. By Monday morning... There was a first sale sign on the front lawn. My last contact with Bruce of any kind happened during the Thanksgiving holiday. Stuffed with turkey, mashed potatoes, and pie, I clambered up into the treehouse to get away from the noise of barking uncles and whining cousins. The walkie-talkie. 
Bruce's walkie-talkie was on the plastic stool. Beneath it sat a note. I never wanted to be like this. I never wanted to come back. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the nosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc. <laughs>